Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland, your lovable host. And today we're going to do an episode that was a request from Matthew Isles, who wrote to me on Twitter. He actually requested a two-part episode about satellites. Uh, and I think it's a great idea. I don't know if I'll do a second part right away, but this first part is going to be a bit about the history of satellites, how they work in general, and also some cool information about them, like how relativity comes into play. I guess it's relatively cool. Wackity schmackity do. All right. So let's talk about satellites and what they are. So a satellite is something that's in orbit around a, another object. And of course, Earth has had a satellite for billions of years. That would be the moon. That's a natural satellite. But if we want to look at man-made satellites, we have to go back a few decades. Uh, and in fact, the, the foundation for man-made satellites, the, the, principles, the idea of what would be required, go back well before the space race ever started. Uh, that would be Isaac Newton, who came up with the idea of what would be required to create a satellite. Now, that's not what he necessarily called it, but this was published in a famous thought experiment back in 1729. And at the time, he was really concentrating on gravity, which is pretty heavy stuff. So Newton's thought experiment was famous. People have talked about this a lot. You've probably heard about it. He said, what if you were to go at the top of a really, really tall mountain and you build a cannon on the top of that mountain and you aim that cannon so that the barrel is parallel with the earth below you? So it's at, at the same, you know, same uh, angle as the ground uh, down at the, the base of the mountain. You fire the cannon. The cannonball flies out and it moves away from the cannon, uh, but it also starts to fall because gravity has been pulling on the cannonball the whole time. You know, the gravity was pulling on the cannonball when it was in the cannon. It's pulling on the cannonball now that it's emerged from the cannon. Eventually, this cannonball is going to fall to the ground. And by eventually, it's, it's based upon the altitude that the cannonball already is at. Uh, doesn't have anything to do with the forward velocity so much as the altitude. He said, well, what if you were to, to pack more gunpowder in this cannon and you fire it? it? Might It'll go further because it's moving at a forward velocity that's that's greater than the previous one, but it still will eventually fall to the Earth, uh, really in that same amount of time. It's just going to be further out from your first shot. But then you keep packing more and more gunpowder in. And eventually, you pack enough gunpowder in so that when you fire the cannonball, it is flying out at a forward velocity at a, at a rate that is equal to how the Earth is curving away from the cannonball. So in other words, the cannonball is falling toward the Earth, but the Earth is curving away from the cannonball at that same rate. So the cannonball never falls down to hit the Earth's surface because the Earth is falling away from the cannonball at the same rate that the cannonball itself is falling. This would mean that eventually you would shoot yourself in the back, because the cannonball would make a full rotation around the Earth and come back to its point of origin. At least that was the thought experiment that Newton had proposed, which seemed like a really clever idea, but there was no practical means of testing it or putting it to any use back in Newton's day. It was just an interesting idea. Uh, it would not be until October 4th, 1957, 
And that's when the then Soviet Union made history by launching the first man-made satellite into Earth orbit. And that satellite was the Sputnik 1. But it was fairly simple. It was a, a ball that was silver in color. It was about uh, 22.8 inches in diameter, which is around 58 centimeters, so not very big. And it weighed 183.9 pounds, or 83.6 kilograms. The body was made out of an aluminum alloy, and the shell of that aluminum was just two millimeters thick. It was actually two hemispheres of a globe that were connected together by 36 bolts around the uh, circumference of those hemispheres. It had two antennas, and each antenna had two beams, so like four prongs extending uh, backward from the from the sphere itself, almost like it had four legs. One pair of antenna were 7.9 feet long, or about 2.4 meters. The other pair was 12.8 feet long, or 3.9 meters. Inside the satellite, there wasn't a whole lot, uh, not compared to what had originally been planned to put in the satellite. Inside it was a radio transmitter, so it could communicate back to Earth. Uh, it had three silver-zinc batteries that would provide power. It had a couple of different switches inside of it, remote switches. Uh, a thermal system fan was in there. A control thermal switch and a barometric switch were in there. So, And it was also filled with nitrogen gas to create internal pressure. Essentially, the only things this, this or really the only thing this, this, um, satellite could do was monitor its own systems, like how hot was it or cold was it? What was the pressure like? And then it would beam down information in a series of beeps. In fact, my former co-host Chris Paulette used to refer to Sputnik as the thing what beeps. It actually sounded a bit like this. So if you had had a, a ham radio back in 1957, and you were tuning in, you could actually pick up that signal as Sputnik passed overhead because it was broadcasting on a frequency that was within the citizen band radio frequency. And that meant that people could actually listen in as Sputnik went overhead. It only took 98 minutes for the satellite to go around the Earth. So every hour and a half or so, you would be able to pick this up. And it freaked people out. Out, particularly in the United States, people were freaking out because they were able to actually hear evidence of the Soviet Union's ability to send an object into space. And if they could do that, there was also the fear that they could perhaps fire a ballistic missile, maybe with a nuclear warhead at the United States, that they had had now have the capability to fire massive destructive uh, weapons at the U.S. from a world away. And at this time, the Cold War was going on strong. So it caused more than a little stir. It was the fuel for tons of different science fiction films. Uh, there are all these different uh, uh, instructional movies that explain what you need to do in the case of a nuclear war. <laughs> and most of them were freakishly optimistic. At any rate, propelled the United States into a new era of research and development. The U.S. had already been planning on getting into the space race, but this meant that suddenly everything was cranked up to 11, as Spinal Tap would say. So it really, literally launched the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union. 
Now, for the story of Sputnik itself, you actually have to go back much further, uh, back to the 1940s, in fact, uh, or even earlier when you're looking at the, the rocket program out of the Soviet Union during World War II. Uh, so officially, you would argue that 1952 was was what got Sputnik itself uh, going within the Soviet Union. That's when an organization called the International Council of Scientific Unions called for artificial satellites to be launched in order to study solar activity, which was going to be reaching a peak in 1958. And the United States started planning a launch at least as far back as 1955, and their project was called Vanguard, and pretty much the world was looking at the United States as the leader. It was going to be the U.S. that would be launching a uh, a satellite sometime around the summer of 1957. But the Soviet Union thought, hey, we have the opportunity to show up our rival, and so they really put Sputnik on the fast track. Now, to, to look at what was going on in the Soviet Union... Going back to the 1930s and 1940s, there was a man named Mikhail Tikhonravov. Oh, I'm going to mess up that name all the time. Tikhonravov, who led a team of scientists to design, build, and launch Sputnik 1. But their early work was really looking at missile systems, ballistic missile, missile systems for military use. Uh, they just saw the potential for using those same systems to launch a satellite into space. And they were really looking at the possibility of using multi-stage rockets in order to get the right amount of acceleration to push an object into orbit. And they were often relying on research performed not just by their team, but by other scientific teams around the world. Uh, often this was information that were that was uh, pulled in through espionage. It wasn't necessarily the scientific community openly sharing this information. And originally... Uh, they were really looking at how can we make missiles, better missiles for the Soviet Union. Uh, the group would form in 1946, so not long after the end of World War II. And the team worked on satellite plans pretty much in secret because they weren't sure if the Soviet government would actually appreciate their interest in scientific research that did not have an immediate military application. Now, keep in mind that until 1953... The Soviet Union was being led by Joseph Stalin, and he was an incredibly brutal dictator, and paranoia was rampant in the Soviet Union. There were stories about secret police and kidnappings in the middle of the night. People lived in constant fear of being arrested or executed. But after Stalin died in March 1953, people were able to concentrate on something beyond just not being noticed. Uh, it's hard to imagine how terrifying that time must have been. But it's probably no coincidence that it was 1954 when the Soviet scientists stopped hiding the fact that they were performing this satellite research. They would talk about it openly. And the project received support from various scientific societies within the USSR, but it wouldn't be until 1956 that they received official approval from the Kremlin. So uh, if you want to hear a really amazing story about bureaucracy, science, politics, and how messed up everything was in the Soviet Union in the 1950s, you should really research the full story of Sputnik. Because it's amazing that this project ever really got 
a lot of, of uh, support. In large part, the support was coming from the Soviet Union wanting to demonstrate its power, not to pursue science, but in order to show the rest of the world, we're the big bear. Don't mess with us. There were a whole bunch of different departments that all worked on the design of the Sputnik project. And it's kind of interesting to see how diverse this group was. So those those different departments included the Academy of Sciences of USSR, which oversaw the scientific research and development of the project. There was the organization OKB-1, which was the USSR's Experimental Design Bureau. It's essentially was the equivalent of our DARPA here in the United States. It was a research and development program that really took big risks to see if they could find big reward from scientific research uh, implemented in practical ways. That particularly uh, that particular department fell under the direction of the Ministry of Defense Industry. So that group was responsible for designing the body of the satellite. And in the satellite biz, we refer to this as the bus. The bus is essentially the the body or shell inside which all the instrumentation exists, apart from, you know, some instrumentation obviously has to be on the outside of the bus, like any sort of imagery or antenna. Uh, but you get what I mean. Next, we have the Ministry of Radio Industry. Uh, they were in charge of flight control systems, radio and telemetry systems. Then you had the Ministry of Shipbuilding. The shipbuilding ministry was responsible for designing the gyroscopes that would go in the satellite. You had the Ministry of Machine Building. Uh, they were responsible for ground processing, transport, fueling, and launch hardware. You had the Ministry of Defense itself, which was in charge of launch operations. You had the Ministry of Avia- Aviation Industry, which was in charge of the tracking systems. And the Special Committee of the Soviet of Ministers, which were all about the management and coordination of the program overall. Now, originally, Sputnik was referred to as Object D, and it was supposed to be a much larger, much more sophisticated satellite. Uh, it was not supposed to just be the thing what beeps. It was supposed to have a lot of instrumentation for actual scientific study with a collection of useful instruments. But they, the project suffered several setbacks in the design process that kept pushing back when they would be able to launch And there was a growing concern that the United States was going to be able to launch a satellite in orbit starting on July 1st, 1957. So they had a new goal. They wanted to strip down their ideas to just the most essential elements to try and beat America to the punch. And they did. They were able to create a much uh, smaller, uh, more basic satellite, and they were able to launch it before the United States could send their own satellite into space. And they set a precedent. And in fact, not only did the USSR beat the USA, they did it twice. The second satellite, which was Sputnik 2, contained the first life form sent into Earth orbit. And that was the dog named Laika. And Laika was always destined to die during this mission. There was no uh, plan for Laika to return to Earth safely. Uh, Laika was going to die inside the satellite uh, either by starvation or thirst. It, it was just no, or suffocation. It was just known that this was a one-way trip for the dog. Um, the dog likely died due to overheating fairly early in the mission, based upon what the instrumentation was saying. 
And there have been a lot of web comics, cartoons, and an amazing song, more than one song, but there's a great song called Space Doggity, which was written by Jonathan Colton and obviously has uh, uh, a lot of influence from Space Oddity, from David Bowie's Space Oddity in there. Space Doggity, great song. There's actually a video on YouTube someone's put together with actual footage of Laika uh, from Sputnik 2. And that's all I'm going to say about that, because otherwise I'm going to get all choked up. Because to me, it's a very sad story, a necessary story. I totally understand why we need to use animals to test these systems, because clearly you can't just put a human in there and hope everything turns out all right. But it's still a very sad story to me because uh, I'm, a, I'm a squishy dog lover. I, I have a dog. And I, I, when I look at my dog and imagine what Laika was going through, I just fall to pieces. At any rate, the United States response to Sputnik was to go back to the drawing board. They had their Vanguard design that they had planned to launch, but that now felt that it was no longer a strong enough offering. They needed to come up with a better satellite to really be a good response to the Soviet Union's uh, project. So the new USA project was called Explorer, and it was led by a rocket scientist named Werner von Braun. Uh, von Braun was a brilliant physicist, a, 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 a very intelligent rocket scientist, but he had an incredibly dark past. Uh, he was born in Germany in 1912, and he was part of the Rocket Society as early as 1929, as the Nazis gained power in Germany during the 30s, uh, von Braun chose to work for the German army to develop missiles. He wanted to continue his research and work, and it seemed like the uh, the most opportune place. And his work was instrumental in the development of the V-2 ballistic missile, which uh, was a tool the Nazis used to some effect, perhaps not as great as it could have been, but certainly was a destructive weapon that caused uh, a lot of damage and death. He was eventually awarded an honorary rank in the SS by Heinrich Himmler. Uh, it is said, however, that von Braun only accepted that rank because he and his team were worried that Himmler would be angry if he had declined it. So uh, at least some accounts state that von Braun didn't share the political ideology of the Nazis he just saw this as the opportunity for him to actually do his work. And if he didn't join the Nazis, then he would not be able to do his work. Von Braun realized that Germany would lose the war. I think a lot of people realized that it was getting to a point where it was undeniable. And so he made plans to surrender himself and his team of around 500 rocket scientists to the Allies and offered to do research for the United States. Uh, to help them develop their ballistic missiles further. So Von Braun and his scientists would create a, a rocket research center that originally fell under the guidance of the United States Army, but eventually it would get shifted to a new organization called NASA, which was founded mainly in reaction to Sputnik and really be part of the space race. Explorer 1 would launch on January 31st, 1958, and it made an actual scientific discovery on its uh, orbital flight. It discovered magnetic radiation belts around the Earth, which are now called the Van Allen Belt, 
after one of the, the lead researcher on the project. Now, these days, satellites are way more sophisticated than Sputnik or even Explorer 1. And they typically use solar panels to capture solar energy and convert it into electricity that is used to charge batteries for power. Some of them actually use fuel cells rather than batteries to generate electricity. And we've used nuclear power in some probes that we've sent away from our planet. But in general, we tend to be a bit skittish about the idea of putting nuclear power into stuff that's going to be orbiting our own planet. Uh, satellites tend to have some pretty sophisticated stuff inside them these days, like computer control systems, which were well beyond the abilities of the early satellites, which had electromechanical controls. But now we've got computer control systems, radio communications, uh, attitude control systems. Attitude in this case isn't about personality, but rather the satellite's orientation with respect to the position of the Earth. And satellites can have different shaped orbits. Some have circular orbits, which are very regular and uh, and predictable, but some have elliptical orbits and elliptical orbits are interesting because a satellite will travel at different speeds along its orbital path. So there are two points along that path that we call the foci of the elliptical orbit. The point that's closest to the planet is the perigee. And that's the point at which the satellite will be moving fastest through its orbit. It's like, think of it like the slingshot effect. The furthest point from a planet, uh, uh, the furthest point in the orbit, uh, the satellite's orbit from a planet, is the apogee. And that's where the satellite will move the slowest in its orbital path. Now, launching a satellite into orbit obviously requires rockets. And in a rocket launch, a special system is used called the inertial guidance system, which calculates the adjustments needed to push a satellite into the correct orbit. I'll talk about the different orbits in a second. Typically, rockets are fired so that they head eastward, and that means that the Earth's rotation gives those rockets a speed boost. It's like the rockets are actually flying faster than they really are because of the relative motion of the Earth. If you were to launch your rocket at the equator, you would get the biggest boost because the Earth bulges out there. It's the, the largest diameter. So here's how you would determine the boost you get to your speed. You take the Earth's circumference, which is about 24,900 miles or 40,065 kilometers. You figure out how fast the Earth rotates, which is one full rotation in approximately 24 hours, which gives us a speed of around 1,038 miles per hour or 1,669 kilometers per hour. That's the rotational speed of the Earth. Uh, that's typically that's actually at the equator. If you were to look at a launch facility at Cape Canaveral, the rotational speed is different because you're further north of the equator. You're not at the thickest part of the Earth. Uh, therefore, the circumference is smaller and you have a slower speed. So a slower rotational speed at that point. So it's closer to around 894 miles per hour or 1440 kilometers per hour. But that speed boost gives us a big help. So to get the satellite into orbit, you have to be going wicked fast, but not as fast as what you would need to actually escape Earth's gravity. So if you wanted to go out into space and beyond Earth's gravity, you're leaving Earth orbit, you're heading out to Mars or something, you would have to accelerate to at least 25,039 miles per hour or 40,320 kilometers per hour to escape Earth's gravity and enter outer space. Putting a satellite in orbit requires less speed, and it all depends upon which orbit you're trying to insert the satellite into. 
the orbits determine the speed. So lower orbits require faster speeds, which might seem counterintuitive at first, but you got to remember those lower orbits, that, that speed is meant to counteract the gravitational pull of Earth so that the object in orbit remains in orbit, doesn't get pulled back down to the ground. So when you're closer to Earth, the force of gravity is greater. As you probably remember, gravity is dependent upon two things, the mass of two objects and their relative distance to one another. So as distance increases, gravitational pull decreases, and you don't need to counteract that with more velocity to make sure an object stays within its orbital path and doesn't deteriorate and fall into the Earth. So uh, higher orbits require lower speeds, and if you get far enough out there, you can have a satellite that orbits at the same speed as Earth's rotation. Uh, those would be uh, geostationary orbits. They would appear to be directly above a fixed point on the Earth, and they would not move from that point. I'll get into that more in a, just a second. First, let's talk about the various types of orbits uh, from an altitude, because we can describe orbits in different ways. You can describe their orbital pathway, whether it's circular or elliptical. You can describe it uh, in its altitude, and you can describe it in its orientation, as in, is it equatorial? Is it directly above the equator? Is there any degree of inclination? Uh, is it a polar orbit, which goes north-south, not east-west? Lots of different ways to describe them. So from an altitude perspective, we start with low Earth orbit. That's the one closest in to the Earth. And that's in a range that's between 111 miles and 1,243 miles above the surface of the Earth. In kilometers, that would be 180 to 2,000. Uh, this tends to be the altitude we use for satellites that collect surface observations, photography, weather satellites, that kind of thing. When you go further out, you get to medium Earth orbit. That's in a zone that's between 1,243 miles and 22,223 miles, or in kilometers, way easier, 2,000 to 36,000 kilometers. Navigation satellites like GPS tend to be at this altitude, although some are at higher altitudes. Then you get to geosynchronous orbit. That's when you are at an altitude that's greater than 22,223 miles. In other words, greater than 36,000 kilometers. The orbital period is the same as the Earth's rotational period, meaning it takes a full day for the satellite to go all the way around the Earth. There are, is a subset of geosynchronous satellites called geostationary satellites. So all geostationary satellites are also geosynchronous, but not all geosynchronous satellites are geostationary. If you have a geostationary satellite, that's one of those satellites that remains over a fixed position on the Earth's surface. So you could build an antenna at that point, pointed straight up into the uh, atmosphere, and it's going to be aimed directly at that satellite. And as long as nothing changes in that satellite's orbit, things do change over time, so you have to correct it occasionally. But as long as nothing changes, uh, the antenna and satellite will always be in alignment. That's a geostationary satellite. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's day or night. You're always going to have a direct line of sight between the antenna and the satellite. I mean, the satellite's going to be too far away for you to see it, but <laughs> there's a direct line of sight as far as the antenna is concerned. All geostationary satellites are geosynchronous, like I said. But if the opposite isn't true, what's going on? How are geosynchronous satellites that aren't geostationary, how does that work? Well, a geosynchronous satellite does make one orbit around the Earth in the same amount of time it takes the Earth to make one rotation. 
uh, an inertial or fixed space, which is also called a side reel day. It's actually not 24 hours. Specifically, it is 23 hours, 56 minutes and four seconds of mean solar time. If the satellite has any inclination or a non-circular orbital path, it will not be geostationary. The satellite will appear to roam over the Earth's surface. So in elliptical orbits, those egg-shaped orbits, the satellite would be moving at different speeds along its journey. Remember the perigee and apogee. It's going to be moving at at different uh, velocities as it goes around the Earth. Uh, Inclination, by the way, is the angle between a reference plane and the orbital plane. The reference plane, in this case, uh, we're talking specifically about the equator. So imagine you've got the Earth's globe. Uh, you've got it tilted at a slight angle because the axis is on an angle and you've got the equator. If you have a geosynchronous satellite directly above the equator, it's going to be geostationary. It's going to stay around that fixed point. But if you go north or south of the equator and you place a satellite there, it will it will not stay above a fixed point. Its orbit is going to be slightly angled. That's the inclination we would talk about. Uh, so as it would go around the, the pathway, uh, it would actually roam over the surface of the earth. So a satellite that has degrees of inclination in its orbit with respect to the equator will move north and south of the equator as it completes an orbit. So this satellite is going to stay more or less in the same east west area, but it's going to go north south as it goes throughout its orbit. Uh, satellites with an elliptical path will drift east and west from any fixed point on the Earth as the satellite moves faster or slower through its Earth orbit. We have seen there are several satellites that use this where they have both a, a inclination and an elliptical path. So they make this almost like a figure eight kind of pattern over a general region of the Earth's surface, which could be really useful for things like communication satellites or uh, or even GPS in that in that sense, there are some GPS satellites that work under this principle. Uh, geostationary satellites have a view of about 42% of the Earth's surface. Uh, just a single geostationary satellite can see about 42% of the Earth's surface from where it is. So if you just create a network of a few geostationary satellites, you can get a view of practically the entire Earth, really everything between 81 degrees south and 81 degrees north. Beyond those those uh, those degrees, you wouldn't be able to see it just from the way the Earth is curved, but you'd get to see everything between the two. Geostationary satellites tend to be used for communications. Uh, it's a great solution for us on the ground because you don't need to move the antenna on the surface to stay in contact with the satellite. Uh, if the satellite were drifting, if it if it orbited the Earth multiple times during a rotation. You would constantly have to adjust your antenna to remain in contact with the satellite. And there would be times where you would be out of contact with the satellite. It would have the Earth between you and the antenna. So geostationary makes this easy because it's always going to be directly above the antenna. So it makes an ideal communication satellite in that respect. But there are a limited number of slots for geostationary satellites. You know, you, you could go to different altitudes, but you're going to be you're going to be stuck at that equator plane. So you don't want satellites to collide with one another, obviously, that would destroy or at least damage one or both satellites. 
And you don't want the actual data communication to interfere with each other. So you have to separate them out by space. You can't have them too packed, packed in too closely together. And a satellite in geostationary orbit will not stay there forever. Other gravitational forces from the sun and the moon, plus the fact that the Earth is not perfectly round, will cause the satellites to increase in inclination over time. So they'll they'll start to drift a little bit, and then they will no longer be geostationary. Uh, satellites, though, have thrusters on them and fuel inside them in order to make small corrections, which is called station keeping. And that's so that they can stay in the right relative location. But once a satellite has used up all its fuel, it'll experience an increase in inclination. It's unavoidable. You can't fix it at that point. And it's possible, depending upon how the satellite is located, that it could become a hazard to other geostationary or geosynchronous satellites. So normally, at the end of a geostationary satellite's useful lifespan, we'll send a command to the satellite to say, get the heck out of the neighborhood, boost it at a higher altitude, a higher orbit, which moves it out of the way of other satellites, because it's not going to be useful anyway, so you might as well boost it further out and not have it become space junk closer into the Earth. There's already a lot of space junk that's out there. Fortunately, space is really big. So while there's always a threat of space junk being a problem with satellites, it's such a huge space that the odds on any given day are fairly low of an incident. But the more stuff we send up there, the better the odds are that something bad will happen. Now, not all orbits are in an east-west orientation. Now, you're probably imagining that these satellites are orbiting the Earth uh, more or less in the same direction that the Earth rotates, that they are going around and around uh, in the same axis of rotation. Not all of them do. Some of them are rotating north-south. They're going around uh, the poles. You have polar orbits, which are really good for photography and mapping because as these satellites move north to south or south to north, depending upon which way you're going, um, the Earth is rotating under these satellites. So they get a really good view of the Earth. They're great if you want to have a satellite map of a region. They're also not bad if you're hoping for a satellite to pass over a certain region on the Earth so you can get a better look. In other words, these are used for spying. And uh, one particular type of orbit very specific type of orbit, is the Molniya, or lightning orbit. And the orbit takes its name from Soviet satellites that use this particular style of orbit for communications networks. It's an elliptical shape, uh, which means the satellite spends a lot of its time near the apogee uh, po- point the, uh, of the orbit, because that's where it moves the slowest. So if you plan out the telemetry of your satellite in such a way so that the apogee is over a specific region, you know that when the satellite orbits the Earth, it's going to be spending the majority of its orbit over where the apogee is. So if you locate it in a place that you're interested in, you're going to get more coverage of that region uh, throughout the duration of the orbit of the satellite. So the Soviets planned the Apogee to be over the northern hemisphere so that they could serve as a communications network and maybe also, you know, spy on Europe a little bit, perhaps. One thing we use satellites for is to spread a signal from one location to another. And this is a pretty simple idea, actually. It's just bouncing a signal off of a satellite. It's almost like the satellite acts as a mirror 
although it's also an amplifier. So we use an antenna on the Earth, pointed up toward the satellite we're interested in, and we beam a signal into space. It might be audio, it might be video, it could be anything, really. And that antenna is the uplink. Now, the satellite receives this. They have It has its own antenna and receives the signal and then runs it through an amplifier and then beams the amplified signal back down to the Earth. And on Earth, we have other antenna, known as the downlinks, that receive the incoming signal from the satellite. And using this model, we can beam all sorts of useful stuff, like communication signals. Uh, television studios would send feeds up to satellites, which then act as a distribution system. So you would have a centralized location where you would have the the video feed, a video and audio feed. You would send that through an uplink to a satellite that would receive it and beam it back down to receiving stations. And that was how, you know, that's how we get television broadcast beyond just over the air broadcast. In fact, if you have a, uh, a cable company, you could receive these signals yourself using satellites, right? You could have part of a satellite TV system and you have your own little satellite that's pointed up and you receive your television signals that way. Or you could end up having cable, but cable companies also use this method. You would have a centralized location that beams a signal up. It comes down so that various cable distribution networks receive the signal and then they send that through the actual cables that eventually terminate at your television. So this is a very important way of using satellites. Now, I want to conclude this episode with a quick discussion about how relativity affects satellites, uh, both special and general relativity. Now, these, of course, are the, the theories proposed by Einstein that ultimately proved true, at least in the case of time dilation, because we see it in practice with satellites. One of the things we use satellites for is GPS, the global position system. So GPS uh, positioning system, I should say. GPS is incredibly useful. That's what lets us use real-time maps on our phones and GPS devices to go from point A to point B. But in order for GPS to work, it needs to be able to measure time very accurately both for the person who's on Earth and the satellite that is providing the very satellites, I should say, that are providing the information that allows us to uh, to triangulate where we are on the surface of Earth. So here's the problem. Time dilation. Einstein's theory gives us some uh, some issues with time. Special relativity tells us that the faster we move relative to a, an independent observer, the slower time seems to pass for ourselves, um, again, based upon the relative observer. To us, time will pass exactly the same way, no matter how fast we're going. We will It'll feel the same. So if you get on a spaceship that's going near the speed of light and you look at your watch, the second hand's going to tick away as if you were on Earth. But to an independent observer, it would look like that second hand is going super slow. And it would mean that when you finished your journey and came back to Earth, more time would appear to have passed on Earth than it did for you. Even though for people on Earth, time was passing normally, for you on the spaceship, time was passing normally. It's really only when you have this point of reference that you realize that you've experienced different amounts of time. Uh, it's kind of a mind bender, right? 
Well, special relativity tells us that these clocks on board the satellites will tick a little more slowly because they're moving so fast out in space. Uh, they should actually fall behind the clocks here on Earth by about seven microseconds per day, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you're talking about very precise measurements to give you an idea of where you are before long, that becomes an insurmountable problem. So seven microseconds per day slower on the satellites compared to the clocks on Earth. If that were all there were to it, then we would just say, well, we have to find a way like a program that will build in this error so that we know ahead of time how to adjust for it. But it gets more complicated than that. So that's special relativity. But general relativity also plays a part. So one of the predictions made by general relativity is that clocks closer to a massive object will seem to tick more slowly than those that are further away from a massive object. So if we look at it that way, these satellites are very far away from the surface of the Earth. So the, the clocks on the surface of the Earth are much closer to a massive object. The clocks on the satellites are much further away from a massive object. And it's enough to make a big difference. It also means that the clocks on the satellites appear to be ticking faster than the clocks on the ground. So if you calculate a prediction using general relativity as your basis for how fast those clocks will be ticking on the satellites, you would see that they'd be ahead of our ground clocks by about 45 microseconds per day. Now, this actually means that you have to take the difference between the 45 seconds in advance and the or 45 microseconds, I'm sorry, 45 microseconds in advance from general relativity, and you have to subtract the seven microseconds behind from special relativity, and it tells you that the clocks on board the satellites should tick a little bit faster than the clocks here on the ground by the tune of 38 microseconds per day. You take those 45 microseconds ahead from general relativity, subtract the seven microseconds from behind from special relativity, and you get 38 microseconds ahead uh, net. So it, again, is enough for it to cause a high precision system like GPS to have errors after just a few days. So you have to correct for that. You actually have to create a navigational fix so that the system is accurate. Uh, otherwise, you would get errors in where the map would say you were. You would look at the map, and as time would go by, these errors would get worse and worse to the point where it would show you locations that are just ridiculous. You'd be blocks away from where you actually were. And uh, and more if time went on long enough and the GPS satellite system was limited. So you're talking about you know errors of around 10 kilometers every day. That's That's a big deal. You know, you're trying to get from point A to point B and you're getting errors that are 10 kilometers off. That could be disastrous. So it would actually be useless after a very few days. Uh, that's why you have to have algorithms built in that take these relativistic effects into account so that the results you get on your GPS device remain accurate. So I think that's pretty cool that, you know, satellites are a practical way for us to see how relativity can affect us and that relativity is in fact real. It's, it's 
it's not a, it's not quote unquote just a theory. It's something that we can observe directly and know, and know that this is at play. So I wanted to mention that because, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty cool stuff. And honestly, when I was first looking into it years ago, when I was looking at how GPS works, uh, I, I had a handle on special relativity. I understood that the speed of the, uh, movement of the satellites would affect how time passes compared to what we see here on Earth on the surface. But I was not aware of the effects of general relativity. That was something I had to learn when I looked up GPS back in the day, which I think was a, a Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. So, uh, relativity, obviously a very fascinating subject. Uh, I would love to go into further detail, but I think that's more of a stuff to blow your mind than a tech stuff topic. Uh, we have, of course, touched upon relativity a few times in our conversations about various types of technology. But uh, maybe one day I'll, I'll get some stuff to blow your mind, folks, in here, and, and we'll have a big discussion about relativity, not just what it is, but how it directly affects some of the things we do. All right, so that wraps up this discussion about satellites. And I may do a future episode where I go into more detail about the different types of satellites, the instrumentation that is aboard these satellites, how they work, uh, who owns them. Maybe some interesting stories about uh, notable discoveries that satellites have made and notable incidents that have happened because of satellites. Uh, there's a lot of inf- information out there, and it's really fascinating stuff. So that might end up being a future episode. Heck, it might be the next one. I haven't yet uh, scheduled what my next episode will be, so keep an ear out for that. But if you guys have suggestions for future episodes, why don't you do what uh, what Isles did? You know, it was very helpful sending me a message, whether it's on Twitter or Facebook or email. So the email address for this show is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 